From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Group headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the untapped potential of circular chemistry, flying across the Pacific on solar power, a new center on natural capital science, and a milk substitute made from peas. Yeah, we've got to give peas a chance this week on 350. It's April 29th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here, as always, with Green Biz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? Good. How's your week going? Good, good. Survived the dentist. Now, <laughs> on to better things. I'm going to Cliff Bar this afternoon. I understand there's a rock climbing wall at their office. Yeah, they've got some cool stuff. It's Cl- Cliff Bar is one of those cool companies that you just walk in there, and even though I know you love working here, <laughs> you just want, you just say, I want to work there. I was like when I went to Patagonia, you know, where, where a lot of companies might have a, a coat room or a, or a bike room. They have a surfboard room. Oh, of course they do. Which you come in in the morning, and it's full, and you go w- walk through it at lunchtime, and it's empty. Oh, and my so, gosh. You so, so Cliff Bar is kind of like that too. They've just got all this cool stuff, and and it's just a fun place to be. Yeah. and I assume to work. Yeah, they've got all, some new sustainability goals and some interesting stuff they're doing around sustainable transportation with their employees. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, more of that I, I assume uh, next week's edition. Uh, when we've had the usual people passing through the office, I've uh, just had a meeting with the local government commission, which is this great group uh, based in Sacramento of. Uh, local elected officials. I actually uh, had the uh, great honor of to speak along with my soon-to-be co-author, Puck Mickleby, at their uh, annual conference in Yosemite uh, last year. And uh, it's this great group of, of uh, city and county uh, supervisors and council people and a couple mayors and a Probably a few dog catchers, and uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, looking at sustainability and particularly at at climate adaptation was one of the big topics. So we're going to be doing a, a lot more with them at at our Verge conference with the local government commission, and uh, also you'll you'll be hearing from them on this show as well. Well, enough about what's coming up later. Let's pivot to the week in review. As usual, we had a lot of great stories this week on GreenBiz.com. There was uh, Heather Clancy's story on this new group in the UK called The Living Grid. That is about a trio of British businesses, the giant retailer Sainsbury's, Water Management Org, United Utilities, and the manufacturer Aggregate Industries, who are looking at this space of demand response technology, which is not a totally new idea. No, it's kind of a the new take on what we used to call demand-side management, it's DR. DSM is now DR. Well, it's catchier now. That's a shorter acronym. Therefore, progress. That's efficiency for you. So, <laughs> so they have this new organization, and they're going to help 
companies, I guess, shift their time of use of energy uh, to uh, times when the grid is, uh, the energy is cheaper, more available in the evenings. Um, so I guess that's interesting. Uh, and then there was this piece that you did about uh, your usual names in the news, about who's in the news. We had some good friends of ours in the news. Yeah, there were some big career jumps going on in April. David Crane, former CEO of NRG Energy, but also a, an editor at large for GreenBiz, has a new gig. He has moved to Pegasus Capital, which is a private equity firm in New York, where he will be the senior operating executive. Uh, also in the news was a really interesting shakeup uh, between the two Silicon Valley giants, Google and Facebook. Facebook poached Regina Dugan, who is actually the former head of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency uh, within the U.S. government. And she had been at Google working in their advanced tech group that was working on things like smart fabric and and 3D mapping. So very curious to see what she would be doing at Facebook, because that does not sound like it has a whole lot to do with social networks. No, I'm sure it has to do with government networks. Um, you also mentioned you mentioned NRG. There's also Leah Seligman, who was until recently the chief sustainability officer at NRG, and she has uh, departed for uh, new climbs as at the B team, where she's heading up their Net Zero 2050 initiative. This is B team works on a number of different issues besides climate, in addition to climate, but but she's going to be heading up basically their climate strategy. Speaking of interesting individuals, Joel, though, you started off the week with what I assume was a pretty interesting interview. You got in touch with the folks on the Solar Impulse, the solar powered plane that we've been hearing so much about. Yeah, it actually was last weekend, uh, the day after Earth. Day, I managed to have a mid-air conversation with Bertrand Picard, who was the captain of the uh, Solar Impulse 2, which this is this uh, plane that's uh, the, trying to be the first to fly around the world, uh, in, powered entirely by solar cells, and in particular 17,248 of them. Uh, it left uh, from Abu Dhabi uh, last March, March 2015, and it's been flying around. It actually had a couple of of mishaps that got it laid up uh, even for nine months in Hawaii. Uh, so now it was flying from Hawaii to uh, Mountain View. Uh, Google is one of their uh, their investors or, or, or sponsors. And um, it was really interesting to talk to uh, uh, Picard is uh, actually a third generation adventurer and explorer. His father, grandfather were both uh, of that ilk. And uh, he himself is also a, a mountain climber and has set some records. Now he's uh, he's flying a plane. And it was really interesting to talk to him to hear what he he was he'd been trading off with his, uh, his with his partner on this. But this was his particular leg. Um, to hear what he was learning. So one of the things I asked him was, <laughs> what are you learning? I learned that if people tell you that what you want to do is easy, it means that you are not dreaming big enough. You need, when you have a goal, you need people to tell you it's impossible. This is a big stimulation. When something is impossible, you will gain in your team only people who are creative, who are permanent, who are innovative, because they will like to do the impossible also. If you do something easy, you will only have people who are lazy who come because they want an easy life. So the only thing you should, let's say something else you should also remember, is that the conventional thinking, the conventional solutions will not work. Otherwise, it would have been done already. So you need to analyze the paradigm, the official paradigm, and do something else. 
really do something else. This is a really interesting sort of case study for the power of solar, and we're going to get into, in a few minutes, sort of the material science element of all this with some folks from Covestro, a big chemical company in Europe that put a lot of work into this plane. But I'm curious, what is sort of the underlying purpose here? Well, there's a couple. One is simply to promote uh, clean technology. And uh, it was interesting, I asked him at one point, what are you learning about clean, uh, how it's being received as you go from from India to, and Oman to uh, China and Japan, the United States, in terms of, and of course, starting in Europe. And he had some interesting things to say about how the uh, the, the approach and the, the thinking about what the purpose of clean technology was for uh, was different in India. It was about uh, bringing uh, power to the poorest people. In China, it was about cleaning the air in the cities, which is unlivable. In Europe, it's mostly about protecting the environment. He said, "I'm not sure in the United States yet what what it's about." Um, but the point is that they all had a different thing. But what? what so, in addition to promoting clean tech. Uh, and this came up towards the end of the conversation. We'll, we'll play the little clip in a second. Was uh, I asked him, well, what's uh, what's going to come out of this? What does success look like? What, what's the legacy of Solar uh, Impulse Two? And uh, he had a quick answer, and it includes uh, Solar Impulse Four. Here's what he had to say: Solar Impulse is a very powerful leverage to mobilize the enthusiasm of people in favor of clean technologies. And what I would like to do now is to continue the Future is Clean initiative that I have launched a few years ago. Future, Future is Clean is a, an initiative bringing together more than 400 associations, organizations, NGOs around the world from every continent who are trying to introduce clean technologies uh, in our world. And I would like to make a federation for all these uh, all these associations, because they are isolated, they are alone, some are big, some are small, and if we can make a federation that could speak with one voice and give advisors, the technological advisors, technological solutions for government, this is absolutely fantastic, because this will make a big change, because very often the governments are lost. They hear about the problems, but they have no idea about the solutions, and the solutions exist, and all these associations are offering solutions. So I would say the legacy of solar impulse would be, uh, will be uh, future is clean. And there is another field in which uh, mainly André is working. Uh, it's high altitude solar impulse without pilots. And uh, we have our engineering team working already on that, taking the principle of solar impulse. So it's basically a solar impulse tree, flying uh, 16 kilometers or 18 kilometers or 20 kilometers high in the stratosphere for uh, Wi-Fi, uh, GMS, uh, uh, telephone, mobile phone, telecommunication, telemetry, observation for crops, infrared, and things like that. It's, it's probably a huge market, and it's very sustainable because it can stay for years in the stratosphere, and it's much cheaper than satellites. Well, I love the vision, uh, and it certainly syncs with what we're talking about here at GreenBiz in terms of taking technology and data and and big ideas to transform the world. So thank you so much for for showing the way, and um, thanks for talking to me, and uh, bon voyage and uh, happy landings in Mountain View. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I know we're pulling at the same rope, and it's a pleasure to speak to you. Bye-bye. All the best.
In other news this week, our senior writer Barbara Grady took a look at a new initiative from the Nature Conservancy, lovingly known as TNC to most people. Um, The effort is called the Center for Sustainability Science, and the idea is to look at deeper collaborations with companies around the premise that borrowing from biology can both reduce a business's ecological impact while also potentially saving money on climate mitigation, disaster recovery, and maybe even their insurance premiums. And the genesis of all of this was actually something, Joel, that you are very familiar with, and that was an effort that Dow Chemical had undertaken. Yeah, so way back in 2011, January 2011, uh, the Nature Conservancy, TNC, and Dow announced a multi-year partnership, uh, five-year partnership that I presume is just now ended, to measure and track the business value of, of ecosystem services um, for for Dow, and so ecosystem services, if just a level set here, is refers to the thirty or forty trillion dollars worth of free deliverables provided to us by a healthy planet, things like clean water and breathable air and pollination, recreation, habitat, soil formation, things like that, a bunch of other things we generally take for granted and which don't show up on company balance sheets, but they're you know critical to company operations and resilience. Just because companies don't pay for them doesn't mean they don't have a value. And so that's part of what uh, Dow and TNC are trying to do and look at how to think about that. So for example, uh, Dow has a uh, wastewater facility at one of its plants in Texas. And by looking at this and understanding the um, the, the ecosystem, uh, the value of the ecosystem services, they were able to determine that they didn't need to build a big, you know, concrete and steel Stalin-esque kind of wastewater treatment plant, they could do some uh, riparian uh, uh, remediation as they could they could make sure the stream upstream was was clean and the, was was uh, repaired in the ways that it needed to be uh, repaired and it was going to provide clean water and and it was going to filter the water in ways that that only nature can do. Uh, and so making those kind of investments, they saved a lot of money and, and so on. So now I guess the idea is let's create a center and try and propagate these kinds of initiatives. Yeah. And one way they're trying to propagate these ideas is through technology tools. Uh, there's an app that was developed with Dow and an outside firm called the Ecometric Solutions Group. It's called the Ecosystem Services Identification and Inventory, or ESII, and that allows users like companies or potentially public agencies to sort of quantify natural benefits in a given area. So that's combining mapping with some of these natural capital ideas. It's an interesting area, and I'll be curious to see um, when we get more examples of sort of how people quantify this, because obviously sort of a a slippery metric uh, and something that will take some thought. Yes, but if you can figure it out, um, you can do a lot of things. You can save a lot of money. You can basically create more green infrastructure. Cities are already doing this by finding ways to absorb floodwaters uh, through through grasses and and other kinds of median strips that uh, re- take uh, take in the water naturally, return it to the water cycle rather than sending it on to the to the wastewater system. And so when you can do that right, you get to save a lot of money and uh, increase the resilience of your organization.
This week we had a very interesting story about an entrepreneur who will be familiar to those who follow green products. That would be Adam Lowry, who was previously the founder of the green cleaning product company Method Products. Our senior writer Heather Clancy took a look at his new venture this week, and she is joining us now. How's it going, Heather? It's going well, Lauren. Thanks for having me. All right. So tell us a little bit about this new product that Adam Lowry has come out with. So the last time I spoke with Adam, he was working on this great manufacturing facility in Chicago. We wrote about that extensively, but he really focused on making uh, methods, method, if you will, of making products more sustainable. Um, And he, uh, after that project, he was looking for new things. And so he decided to leave his company last year and look for new challenges. And this, this new dairy-free alternative was what he stumbled on. His, his company is called Ripple Foods. And what is the raw material that goes into this dairy alternative? So it is, they are, it is peas. Um, I happen to love peas. I'm a big pea soup fan, but I never thought about peas as a uh, dairy alternative until um, we started talking about what they're doing to to process these uh these peas. Um, and in fact, if you think about it, soys are also a, a, a legume, right, if you will. That, and so it makes sense that there would be potential here. Um, but uh, in, in any event, Adam was kind of looking around for his next thing, and he stumbled upon this project uh, that Neil Renninger, his, his co-founder, was working on, it, it, ways of separating out uh, as much protein as possible from peas. So Heather, you talked to Adam, who co-founded the company with uh, biofuel industry veteran Neil Renninger, about sort of what market Ripple is chasing. Neil and I chose to focus on the dairy alternative segment because of the huge opportunity for impact that there is in that business. More and more people are going plant-based in their diets, either in full or in part. And yet when they do, they're making a huge sacrifice of both deliciousness and nutrition. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the dairy alternative space, where when you go from milk, which is very carbon intensive and very water intensive, but nutritious to dairy alternatives, you're going to formats that are also really resource intensive, but actually lack the protein and basic nutrition that we come to expect from dairy. And uh, they're just thin and watery and not very good. And we believe by making really good food that's really nutritious, where the sustainability is just built in inherently into the product, that we can create a ripple effect in people's lives that help us to become more healthy ourselves and create a a more sustainable world. They're really highly talking up the the creaminess and the the texture of this of this product that uh, they are pitching it as something that is more like cow's milk than other alternatives. It's not watery and, and thin, um, but yet it produces, you, you need less water if you overall to, to make it. Um, they've spent a lot of time uh, on the taste. Uh, Adam claims that it's an awfully good uh, substitute for your coffee. Um, but uh, you know, they spent a lot of time in the taste as, as, uh, as well as obviously the protein values. The thing that was, I was really astonished to learn is it has about eight grams of protein for every serving. And Whoa. if you look at the other, yeah, if you look at the other alternatives, that's about the same as soy, no surprise there, but it's far greater than almond milk, which is, is by far the most successful milk 
alternative right now, dairy free, however you want to refer to it. But um, almonds, almond milk it has only one gram of protein. Huh. Um, yeah, I was I was really surprised to learn that. Yeah, and obviously this does remind me of some of what's going on in the food industry as well, looking at sort of meat alternatives. And I know there's one interesting company that we ran into when we were in Paris for COP21 was Impossible Foods out of Stanford, and they were actually serving this plant-based fake meat as beef carpaccio. So it was raw fake meat. Um, and it's sort of the same thing where at first I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And I kind of had that same gut reaction when I heard you were working on a story about pea-based milk. Um, but I'm curious in terms of what do we know about sort of how they're marketing this product? And it sounds like they have some interesting packaging. Um, what's sort of the sales strategy here? So if you think about it, um, Mr. Lowry has a lot of experience in retail products. The method product line has an unmistakable look to it. And um, that he's using a lot of that background um, as the way to package the Ripple, the Ripple products. There's four different uh, uh, flavors, if you will, coming out in the original batch. Um, I won't bore you with all the details, but they, if you look at the bottles, they make you think about method, which is not, I'm sure it's not by accident. Uh, he was a very successful entrepreneur and um, really, if you're looking in a shot, a store shelf, you're, it's, you're bound to want to look at it. It is made entirely of recycled plastics, um, which is great. And uh, it, you know, it looks different from, from many of the other products. So that's a, a big ploy and a big play on his part. Also, he has managed to score some pretty big deals already for, for the, the distribution of this. You're already going to have Whole Foods. Um, it's starting in May nationwide. And Target is is committed to coming on board in July. And that's pretty cool for a, a brand new company. And Neil also had some interesting stuff to say about what makes this product different from almond milk and some of the other dairy alternatives that you see out there today. Ripple's products are more sustainable than the alternative dairy products that are out there and dairy milk itself, uh, primarily because we choose plants that are very sustainably grown Um themselves. So we use uh, yellow peas, which fix their own nitrogen. They don't need their own fertilizer. Uh, and they grow with uh, little or no irrigation, so they don't need very much water. Uh, contrast that to almonds, which are grown in the Central Valley of California, a place that, uh, where, where water is, is scarce and it's probably the most valuable water in the world. Uh, or uh, contrast that with coconut water, which uh, coconuts need a lot, of, uh, a lot of water to grow as well. Um, you can also contrast that with dairy milk, where you're uh, feeding uh, dairy cows, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, of plant matter in order to make, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of milk, but certainly not a very efficient process. And then you also have the cows themselves that, that emit a lot of methane uh, in that whole process. So, uh, you know, we go about things a little bit differently. We, instead of uh, using a cow to convert the plant into milk, we just convert the plant into milk ourselves. That's interesting. And as I mean, as a red blooded Midwesterner myself, it is interesting that this comes at a time when there is a lot of talk about sort of the environmental impact of cows and all of the products that mm -hmm. come from them, whether that's steak or whether it's, you know, the whole milk you buy for your coffee or whatever. Um, obviously, lots of emissions uh, there that that people are concerned about lots of land used in cultivating livestock. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this evolves on sort of the, the beverage front as well as the food front. But we'll stay tuned this summer when 
pea-based milk hits the shelves. <laughs> Senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. Take care. So at the top of the show, we billboarded the untapped potential of circular chemistry. Uh, Lauren, tell us about this company you wrote about, Covestro. Yeah, so Covestro is a spin-out of Bayer, which we all know not for its material science primarily, mostly for its healthcare endeavors. They also do a lot of work in agricultural science. Uh, but Covestro was spun out in September of 2015. Uh, they have more than 2,000 products across transportation, construction, electronics, sports equipment, all kinds of things. Another one of those being equipment that was on the solar impulse plane, so sort of advanced coatings and those sorts of things. Um, but it was really interesting. I talked to Richard Northcote, who is their chief sustainability officer. Um, and he was also actually a journalist who covered the chemical industry. So he's very familiar with some of the environmental ales that have been associated with the industry. And he talked a lot about how, as a material science company, at this very interesting moment of the circular economy and sort of much more focus on the environmental impact of toxics and other chemicals, um, they really have to sort of step up their game. So first of all, they were founded uh, or spun off in 2015, September, not that many, six, eight months ago. They already have 2,000 products. Yeah. So they were, I mean, for Bayer, that was a small product group. And then yes. it's grown since they've spun out. Yeah. Okay. So, so how does chemistry become circular? What does that mean here? So a lot of this is obviously something that's still in the R&D stage, um, but they've recruited some interesting people like the guy from Unilever who was responsible for their sort of sustainable palm oil sourcing policy um, and others who are from uh, sort of supply chain sustainability areas. And the idea is to look at... Uh, sort of full life cycle at a lot of their ingredients. He gave the example of chlorine being a very, very energy intensive uh, ingredient in a lot of different materials. So it's going back to the early stages and refining the production process. Um, like they're already realizing things around efficiency savings and uh, with sort of like using computer programming to automate some of the production processes. So that's like a very early example of how these things could be streamlined and made less detrimental to the environment. So my favorite five word definition of the circular economy is keeping the molecules in play, uh, which is to say that chemicals and toxic ingredients even are okay in a circular economy world as long as they stay in production or stay in use and don't end up in the waste stream. Is that what they're talking about here? Is that what they mean when they call uh, refer to this as circular chemistry we didn't talk about toxics in particular we talked more about the fact that this company believes that in 15 to 20 years there will be an entire new spectrum of polymers on the market so sort of plastic as we know it is going to look very very different in the next few years um, i would be very curious to see what that means in terms of the toxicity of the materials um, or whether it just means that they're easier to break down and recycle back into the supply chain. So, yeah, they're talking about, I assume, polymers that you can 
uh, unzip from their whatever state they are as a product and and go back into the pure form that they they're doing they, they now do that with polyester some forms of polyester in carpeting so so that's really interesting well i'd love to hear what else did he have to say let's give it off to richard northcote the chief sustainability officer of cavestro Cavestro is a new company as such, but a company uh, with a new name, I should say. It's a 150-year-old part of Bayer, as it was. We were spun out in uh, September. And anybody who's been through this, the opportunity to come up with not only a new name, but a new vision, a new mission, and new values, it has been an exciting time. And we decided at the time that this was an opportunity with everything that was going on in the world of sustainability that we need to focus our attention much more on how we develop products in the future that are going to have a better carbon footprint, that are going to make vehicles lighter, that are going to make better insulation, energy-saving products. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this seems sort of reminiscent of a, a lot of the reporting we're doing right now on the circular economy, advanced manufacturing. How do you think about sort of the next chapter in materials? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the circular economy is something, being European, that I'm very close to. And, uh, you know, we have very strong views on the circular economy and what, what that actually means. We, we are totally into the recycling of materials wherever it is feasible to do so. Um, I think one of the things that I personally get a bit upset about is recycling for the sake of recycling. Um, there are times when the amount of energy that is needed to recycle something is actually prohibitive. Uh, from a carbon footprint point of view, and yet I'm worried that legislation will be put into place that will force this to be done. We have now developed technologies that allow us to use carbon dioxide as a raw material. So if you think about the circular economy on the circular economy of carbon, then I think we can look at things in a different way. So if you can take carbon, you invest it in a, a product, a plastic, that over the life of that that plastic will save X times, 70 times, 100 times, as much carbon as has been used to manufacture it. At the end of the life, you incinerate it, you capture the CO2, and you push that back in to the next product you're making. That, to me, is also the circular economy. And that's the circular flow of carbon. And if you, if you think about the circular flow of income, you think about the return on capital employed, substitute those words with carbon. And then maybe we can start having a different discussion on how we best can use the fossil fuels and the carbon that we have available to us. Yeah. So this concept sort of instead of thinking about ROI um, in the traditional financial sense, thinking about the return on investment in carbon definitely seems interesting. Are there specific sorts of products or industries that you see the biggest opportunity for this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, we're very fortunate in that you know, we are active in those industries. And the biggest industries are really around the transport sector, where there is this constant demand for lighter vehicles. Um, if you can find substitute materials for the, the heavy materials that are currently being used, then you can start to measure your return on the carbon employed, because all of these materials, recyclable or not, demand a lot of carbon to, to, to manufacture them. So if you can come up with lightweight plastic polymer solutions, then I think we, you know, we're in a real opportunity. Construction. Now, construction for me is one of the most conservative industries, and it's the same wherever you go in the world. It hasn't changed much. And yet there are so many technologies available that will allow construction really to improve its game. But because it's so conservative, 
nobody's really stepping out yet and, and having those big breakthroughs. I mean, we have lead buildings, we have all the other stuff, but there are some big step changes, breakthrough technologies that I believe will come into play in the next, hopefully, five years that really will have a, a huge impact. And and then, you know, electronics is is another ish industry that uh, you know, we're very active in. But I, I also have a, a slight concern about electronics, you know, because if, if, if I'm making materials that go into a mobile phone, for example, and those materials have a lifetime of 75, 100 years, but the product has a fashion lifetime of 18 months, is that really a sustainable use of material? So, you know, these are some of the things that we're trying to address in that how do we come up with constantly more sustainable solutions at the same time as reducing our carbon footprint and not just ours, but encouraging our suppliers and our customers to, to come together and create value chains that are focused on reducing carbon emissions and, and, and improving carbon footprints. And sort of on the bleeding edge of all of this, I know you guys were intimately involved with the Solar Impulse, which is this solar-powered plane that has received a lot of attention. What was your role there? Well, I mean, Solar Impulse is the reason I'm here, actually. I'm on my way to Hawaii to meet up with them uh, um, Solar Impulse is a symbol of clean technology. I mean, it, it's very, very simple. And, and our role has been as a, as a partner and material supplier. Um, we've actually developed the cockpit. Uh, we, we developed and built the cockpit. We insulate the batteries. Um, all our technologies are on that plane. And uh, when we first built it, we talked about it as a flying laboratory. Um, but actually, the products are now being used not just on the plane, they're being used throughout other industries as well. So that you see them in automotive, you see them in construction, you see them in the, the white goods market, and these technologies are pervading new industries. They're much better than the, the products they're substituting. So we don't talk about solar impulses as a laboratory anymore. It's now a flying exhibition of what we can do. And and I think it's not just us, it, it, it's this consortium of partners that have come together to jointly create something, you know, with Bertrand Picard and André Boschberg, that it was impossible. They were told it was impossible, and yet they went ahead and did it. Um, this is fantastic, and 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 I just, the symbolism of what it is 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 actually a symbol that we, as a company, and our seventeen thousand employees, are really get right behind. You know, I did, I was giving town hall uh, earlier this week in Pittsburgh to uh, a group of our, mainly a lot of our young uh, um, technical people. Mm. And you just look at their eyes when you start talking about something like Solar Impulse. This is the future mm. and we're part of it. And, and that's an exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. And finally, I have to say, um, sort of surprising to hear what could be like a chemical incumbent talking about these sort of really progressive things. Where do you think that industry is going and sort of why is there more of an emphasis on sustainability? Well, I mean, I, I, I can't I can't speak for the whole industry. All right. And uh, I think what's important, we as we as a company, we're, we're very fortunate in the chemistries we work with um, because they do contribute. They can contribute to the solutions. But I think it's also important to realize um, why people view our industry the way they do. And a lot of that is historic. Um, we have, as an industry, contributed to a legacy that is not particularly good. And people remember that. But what, had, what people don't realize is what has changed, in, in the, particularly in the last 20 years. Um, if I think about the, the companies that I knew when... Uh, um, when I was young, growing up, and the things that they, they, they had done. 
and I look at the companies today, none of those things could be done in, anymore. Now, part of that is because of legislation that's been put in place, which is good. But the other part is realizing, companies like ours, that realizing that if you are going to be a sustainable company, you cannot go and damage the environment. You cannot, you know, contribute negativities to society just purely on the on the pursuit of profit. And what we did as a company is we have now developed uh, or worked on the, the triple bottom line idea from, from John Elkington, where we look at people, planet, profit for everything we do. And if any innovation that we might want to start does not deliver a positive, um, uh, give us a positive return in two of those three Ps, we automatically throw it out. But if it is negative in the third P, we also throw it out. So everything we do, every new innovation must be positive in two, P, two Ps and cannot be negative in the third. It can be equal, but it cannot be negative. And we've, we've stopped projects because it may have given us a slight pro, uh, more in profit, but actually it was negative in uh, um, people or planet. And, and if, you can, if you can work to these guidelines, I think they, they prove very, very valuable. So now we want to take it on to the next stage. And the next stage is, is looking at how we use carbon. And that is, we're now looking at, uh, as you mentioned earlier, return on carbon. So we're, if we're going to use carbon, if we're going to take a fossil fuel and we're going to use it, we have to ensure that we are going to get a carbon return on that. Not a cash return, a carbon return. That this is a good use of carbon. And uh, this is something that's evolving within within the organization. It's evolving outside of the organizations. I talked to other uh, um, parties about how we can get involved in, in, in coming up with the right me methodology for this. And I think this is really exciting times. Mm -hmm. Well, Richard Northcote of Covestra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. So the weekend is almost here, but let's shift gears and look now at the week ahead. Joining us now is GreenBiz.com Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. Hi, Lauren. I see that you're going tomorrow to San Francisco to the Commonwealth Club. There's a cool event. Um, what's it called? Faster, Smarter, Cleaner, Greener, Developing the Transportation Workforce of the Future. So you'll have a report about that next week. Um, it's got a ton of speakers there from places as varied as the California High Speed Rail Authority to Hyperloop Technologies. So that sounds pretty interesting. Um, speaking of faster, Lou Blaustein, the creator of the Green Sports blog, will have his last piece in a lively three-part series about Land Rover Ben Ainsley Racing's hopes to win the America's Cup in 2017. He even has written about how life cycle assessment and other other sustainability efforts might give them an edge. Um, speaking of getting an edge, um, in energy, fuel cells were all the rage not too long ago, but are they really worth the investment? Senior writer Heather Clancy is taking a closer look with examples from Morgan Stanley, Legrand, and Adobe. And Libby Burnick, senior VP at TrueCost, is exploring the business opportunities from green chemistry in our right chemistry column for May. So we've got a lot 
more lined up as well. We've also got a couple of big events coming up. Uh, from June 21st through 23rd, we'll be in Honolulu at the Verge Hawaii Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. That will be looking at all kinds of issues like fuel cells and next-gen transportation, sustainable food. So be sure to check that out. Then we'll be back in Silicon Valley, September 19th through 22nd for Verge Santa Clara. You can get more information about both of those events and lots of other things in the pipeline at Green greenbiz.com and click on the events tab at the top of the page. Thanks so much for joining us, Elsa. Thanks. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You'll find links to the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thank you to our podcast director, Saria Milconian. You can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels, including iTunes and other places, and you'll find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. Send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments. We love to hear from you. Send it to 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.